Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing misinformation as it relates to the pandemic. To discuss this are IDSA board members, Dr. Carlos Del Rio and Dr. Wendy Armstrong, both of Emory University. Thank you both for being with me. Misinformation has been a major problem in this pandemic. I'd like to direct this to both of you. Dr. Armstrong, I'll start with you, though. What are some of the most common myths and misconceptions you have come across, both in your practice and on social media? It's really been astounding how much misinformation has been out there. I'll uh, give you some that I think are, are very common. The first um, really has just been uh, from the get-go, the origins of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. There are, has been misinformation that it has been purposefully created in a lab as a weapon for bioterrorism, despite the fact that pandemics were pandemic like this was predicted for decades to happen. And we've seen this happen with SARS and MERS. There's been discussion that it's no worse than the flu, but now with you know over 200,000 deaths, it's clear that the death rate is astoundingly greater. We have no vaccine, there's no pre-existing immunity, and we're just beginning to understand long-term sequelae that are very different than with influenza. There's been the myth that children don't get sick, and while children have lower death rates um, and lower rates of severe illness, it is also clear that children can get sick. And certainly this myth that children don't transmit has been a common one. Uh, We now know certainly that teenagers transmit very easily and that young children can transmit as well. And this, of course, has been really important in the discussions of school openings and closures and has uh, informed a lot of the controversy around that. Because children can carry this virus and can transmit, there's been discussions about whether or not we can protect our elderly just by simply uh, sequestering the vulnerable, which I think, again, is another myth, a myth that we can actually keep this out of certain portions of the population, given the multi-generational households, the way that our society works, the way that grocery stores and everything else work. You know, epidemiologically, there's some really significant myths you know, Dr. Del Rio, maybe you want to talk about some associated with treatment and vaccination and how else we mitigate this. Yeah, absolutely, uh, Dr. Armstrong. I think that, as you say, the number of myths are just incredible. And I would, I would like to pinpoint, obviously, you know, around treatment, we've seen myths around hydroxychloroquine, we've seen misinformation around zinc, about, about all sorts of different therapies that people are using with absolutely no, no use. Uh, but we also saw, quite frankly, misinformation around monoclonals right after the president received monoclonal antibodies, he said there will be going to be available for everyone and available for free, or there simply is not enough enough production to make it available for everyone. And so therefore, that's, again, uh, more misinformation. And then there clearly has been, you know, a lot of misinformation around vaccines. And I think the, the most important one to me is the fact that people think once we have a vaccine, we're going to go back to normal and stop wearing masks. And that, to me, has really been very unfortunate because a vaccine is going to be an important part of the strategy to end this pandemic, but it's not going to be like turning on a switch that, you know, all of a sudden you're in the dark, you turn on the switch and the light is there and you're done, right? We're still going to, it's going to take some more time. And finally, I think that the biggest myth that we've seen is this whole myth around masks. And, and masks have become, the number of myths around masks are incredible. You know, you retain CO2, you can't breathe, you get bacteria in them, and therefore you get pneumonia if you use them and all sorts of things that are just making it so, so hard to do simple public health measures and to do the kind of mitigation that we should be doing to control this pandemic. 
Thank you both doctors for raising those misconceptions, bringing them to light. We appreciate that. Dr. Armstrong, coming back to you now, why do you think we are seeing more and more people who believe and share false information related to COVID-19? It's again, really a a complicated situation. And I think that that um, contributes to this. First off, we've had tremendous mixed messages. We've had messages from people and positions of leadership that um, are um, absolutely opposed to each other. And so of course the public is confused and that's understandable. You know, the second is that, you know, when you're not an expert in something, the easiest way to think about things is in dichotomies and to not see nuance is to think it's either this or that. And I think human nature, um, you know, helps us want to do that. So for example, you know, we hear about whether uh, we need to be in complete lockdown or, um, or communities are completely open. And of course, there is a huge important area in between that about how do we open essential businesses safely. The same was true about masks. You know, uh, early on, as we were learning about this uh, virus, of course, there was a discussion about maintaining masks for medical personnel and not encouraging the public to wear them. And now, of course, that's uh, shifted and we understand the very important role that masks play. That, that's again hard. People are, are confused by that shift in information. And it, uh, of course, um, reflects a lot of nuance to understanding, but that uh, becomes confusing. Another example is um, transmission. Is it all droplet? Is it aerosol? Of course, it's somewhere in between the two of those. But again, this word that when there's nuance and expertise is required to understand that nuance, that's difficult for a public that's not um, scientifically trained. I think another thing is, is again, everyone is tired. Everyone is afraid. Human nature says that you want to grab those messages that are most encouraging. You know, how many times have I, knowing what I know, you know, thought, well, maybe it'll be over in a month or maybe this will happen. And I understand that that isn't true, but boy, my nature wants to grab those kinds of messages. And so um, I think that's, that's difficult. And then, you know, there's a lot about what we see. If you haven't had personal experience with someone who's been severely ill, it's hard to believe that it's out there. And these numbers are so huge that they're overwhelming and hard to believe. You think back to the Vietnam War, that protests about the Vietnam War started when we brought those images into people's TV screens. But here there are fewer images, you know, fewer images from inside hospitals where patient confidentiality is important. Some individuals don't have personal experience. This is the virus is invisible. You can't see it. And so all of these things, I think, lead to confusion, but ultimately as well. uh, And very sadly, I think for all of us um, in uh, infectious disease and public health is that this has become political. And so now there's an additional force that is influencing people's response to messaging that is just incredibly unfortunate because as we know, health should never be political. Despite everything that many of us are very pleased that we have social media, the reality is social media has really contributed to the spread of this information. And this is, this is the, the first pandemic of social media. And a decade ago when we had you know, the, uh, the influenza pandemic of 2009, only about 8% of Americans over 65 were in anything related to social media, Facebook, et cetera. Today, the figure is over 40%. And older individuals who are less experienced and click easily on things are likely to retransmit falsehoods. So it's a very interesting study showing that age is the strongest predictor of engagement in fake news. So we are having this, this epidemic of, of this infodemic 
And you know, infodemic is a term that, that means that there's an excessive amount of information about a problem that is typically unreliable, spreads rapidly, and makes a solution more difficult to achieve. And in fact, in this pandemic, we're not only fighting a virus, we're really fighting this, this infodemic that is really creating a, a lot of difficulty because we're not being able to get a message straight to people. There's also, of course, what Dr. Armstrong mentioned, which is, you know, we know today things that we wish we had known a month ago or two months ago. As this is a new disease and we're learning more and more, we are clearly learning things. And so there's a lot of discussion whether this is, uh, first we said it's this, you know, very important transmission by, by surfaces. So we were spending a lot of time cleaning things and we still are, but the reality is the most recent evidence shows that it's probably not that important. The surface transmission is not that critical, but airborne transmission is more important than we thought initially. So it also almost seems like we scientists don't have our message right from the beginning. So our evolving information gets confused also with fake news and misinformation. So you have this difficulty trying to distinguish what is knowledge evolving versus what is misinformation. And that makes it really hard. I saw a great statistic recently when you mentioned social media as well that showed that misinformation coming from non-public health figures like politicians, celebrities, and other influencers represented about 20% of the claims on social media, but they actually represented nearly 70% of total social media engagement. So it shows the role that social media can play in spreading misinformation using um, influencers. Influencers can do a lot of good, but they can also do a lot of harm because, you know, if you have somebody who has thousands or millions of followers saying that, you know, I mean, I, I can still remember, you know, the CDC director saying wear a mask and because this helps. And then, you know, the president immediately saying, well, he's confused. He doesn't know what he's talking about. It just creates a, a very difficult situation for people to really know who exactly is telling the truth. A very complicated situation indeed. Thank you, doctors, for your insights. I appreciate them. Dr. Del Rio, you have avidly spoken out about the mounting misinformation. What, in your opinion, is the key to reversing the trend? And what are some best practices to combat this so-called infodemic? Well, well, first of all, we're not going to end it. So one thing that we need to to learn, this is the infodemic is almost like the virus. You know, we, we, we can contain it, we can mitigate it we can uh, confront it, but, but it's not going to end because unfortunately, you know, information is all over the place and you can't stop it. But you got to make sure that the information is coming from authoritative sources. As, as Dr. Armstrong said, listen to the experts, listen to the infectious disease physicians, listen to members of IDSA on Twitter, on social media. Don't, don't listen to influencers just because, you know, uh, you know, Justin Bieber, maybe somebody who, you know, who has a lot of followers, but he may not have the right information. Number two, I think it's really important that you check the information that has been recently published and read the article. You know, now Twitter is actually forcing you before you can retweet us asking you, have you read the article? I think it's really important that we actually read the information. Again, I go to trust the experts, you know, IDSA members and others who are really experts need to be the ones that you're following. Consider carefully the news that you're looking at and, and, and be careful about things that are designed to elicit an emotional response. And be careful to distinguish news from opinion. I think, you know, frequently people are, are retweeting things that are nothing by opinion. So I think those are some of the quick things that you can do to really try to separate fact from fiction. Just to add on to that, it is so important, again, as you mentioned, that individuals listen to public health experts and so on. But, you know, we also know in our own Twitter feeds that they're highly, you know, skewed towards um, people that we listen to or are interested in. And so we see a lot of messaging from public health influencers. 
Um, but, uh, but others may not have the same Twitter feed. So I think some other things can help. For example, really coordinating a campaign of influencers, you know, like celebrities, like politicians and others who support science and public health so that they can actually help um, magnify the appropriate messaging and partner with um, scientists and public health experts to get appropriate messaging out there. Um, which will have a much broader reach into many sectors. And so that would you know, require getting um, influencers that are influential in different populations, minority populations, a different age populations, different ethnic populations, and so on. Another um, strategy that I think is important is, you know, uh, how do you then again get the message to the people who need to hear it most? You know, our ad industry is brilliant at understanding audience data and understanding the preferences of various individuals. And so, again, using some of those tactics to get the right messaging out there in a very, again, coordinated way um, that delivers accurate and timely data to the right people in ways that resonate with them is a way that I think we can have a lot more influence. So I think we need to get more sophisticated because the reach of public health experts alone is only so far. We, we live in our little echo chamber. And if we don't step outside the echo chamber and we don't develop the strategies, and as you said, I think the, the ad industries and other people know how to do that really, really well. And if you reach to those people, you're reaching into an audience that, that we absolutely have no penetration into. Thank you, doctors. For this last question, I'd like to open it up as a discussion for the panel regarding the best practices in combating misinformation and the roles ID professionals, scientists, and agencies like the World Health Organization and CDC have in leveraging social media and other forms of media to reverse this trend. Dr. Del Rio. Well, I'll start by saying that WHO has actually developed a website on, on COVID-19 Mythbusters. And I think they're Mythbusters with, with very clear you know, myths and then the facts attached to it that are little infographic, I think are really useful. And they, they are the kind of thing that, as, as Dr. Armstrong said, it's innovative, it, it can be given to the public, it doesn't have you know, p-value statistics, it has simple messages that I think we can get to people. So Mythbusters from WHO, I think it's a good place to go to find some of this information. I think another thing that, that infectious disease doctors and others can do, I think we, we all know when we do advocacy to our politicians that the things that make the most impact, the messaging that makes the most impact is when we can tell stories that are uh, about real experiences with people. And I think we need to be doing more of that. Again, packaging material in ways that resonate with people. The more we can share personal experiences about what we're seeing, what is happening, the more, again, those are um, things, not p-values, not scientific uh, language, but experiences that people can grab onto and understand. We need to message in such a way that it is um, simple and straightforward and clear to get our message out there. As you said, when you talk to politicians, when you talk to others, we need to learn how to talk to, to lay audiences and how to talk to people outside our, our circle, because sometimes we'll all make the mistakes of putting an, an abbreviation in, in Twitter or in social media. Many of us feel, you know, everybody should understand, but the reality is, that they don't. And it's, it's so good that we actually try to explain that in a way that it actually makes sense. I also think that something that really helps is, is how, you know, the stories you can share could also be your own personal stories. And I think it makes, it's very powerful that as, as ID physicians are seeing patients, are, are, are seeing cases, you know, with, with HIPAA, 
uh, being protected, et cetera, but we're still sharing the story about, you know, today I saw this 60 year old woman who lives with her, you know, grandchildren, and now she's in the hospital in the ICU intubator because she got infected because at home. And those kinds of stories really make people understand the reality of what's behind this. It's also important to understand where people are coming from. Everyone wants to do the right thing. Oftentimes there's confusion about what is the right thing to do. And it's understandable, again, on some, you know, from an individual who has um, not personally experienced um, someone who has contracted COVID-19 but who has experienced, you know, tremendous financial instability related to lockdowns and so on, that that perspective may look different. And so I think, um, again, it's critical to understand where people are coming from, to use non-judgmental language and to be, uh, and to, you know, explain things clearly, to look at um, middle grounds, to think about how we can mitigate, use the best mitigation practices uh, while sort of helping people maintain their livelihoods appropriately. I think the more that, again, that we can communicate um, uh, uh, messaging that understands the challenges people experience and where they're coming from and isn't judgmental, the better these messages get across. The other thing I would add to that is that, that in general, fear is a really poor motivator. Trust and, and compassion work so much better and if you get trust linked to action, then it really works better. So it's really important that we really have to train people about how to do positive, culturally competent and effective communication to the public via social media. Because the reality is that, that this is a way of communication that it's pretty new and none of us is trained on it. And I think we've all made mistakes when we get into this swirl and, and complicated way of communication. At this point, I'd like to open up the floor for any final thoughts. It is so important that all of us in infectious disease continue to talk about what we see, talk about our experience, be out there, be prominent in our communities. We are trusted officials. We are trusted voices. Sadly, so many uh, voices in infectious disease now have sort of confusion uh, around motives, such as, for example, the CDC, which has been sort of embroiled in the middle of the politics. And so we can rise above that and we can, um, uh, again, really be uh, a clear voice, but it's important that we as physicians use that voice. The other thing I would say is that when I think about responding to a pandemic, I'd like to tell that, that the, the key to the response is the three eyes, right? Information, identification, and isolation. And information is the first of those eyes. We have an, op, an obligation to continue to inform people. And information has to be uh, delivered in such a way that it's, that it's credible, that it's reliable, that it creates trust, and that it, 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 it continues to be done. And it's not something you can say, well, we've done it once, we don't need to do it again, because well, those of us that have been working on HIV, I mean, still, still continue to have to tell people how is this transmitted, how do you acquire it. We think that just because you did it once, you're done. And the reality is that if that's not the case, you really need to reinforcing and recommunicating the information. And sometimes you feel like you, you, you're doing, you're done it uh, too many times. Well, there's never enough times of communicating facts and, and re reinforcing facts. So every opportunity you have, reinforce the facts and reinforce the data that people need to know. I'd like to thank Drs. Armstrong and Del Rio for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website. And don't forget to visit our COVID-19 real-time learning network at idsociety.org 
slash COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network for the most up-to-date COVID-19 resources. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. I'm Nadia Singh.